The theme for these three days is the issue of ta'ameha mitzvot, of giving reasons for commandments. The Torah has, according to tradition, 613 commandments in them, and many of them, large numbers of them, the vast majority of them don't have any rules attached to them. And the question is, uh, we will be analyzing over these next three days ways in which Jewish thinkers and Jewish Bible commentators have attempted to deal with the question of what are the reasons for various laws that appear in the Torah. But before we do that, we really will consider the question about whether it is a good idea to be looking for the reasons of the laws in the Torah. I know that there's at least one lawyer here. There might be more than one lawyer uh, in the room right now. The question is, is it really of value for citizens of the United States of America to know what the reasons are for the laws in the United States of America? When, when you, if you drove here today and you saw a sign that said no parking at a specific spot, is it important for you to know what the reason is for uh, the fact that parking is forbidden there. Is it important for you to know the reason why you are being taxed in various ways? Does it make it easier for you to observe the laws of the United States of America if you know what the reasons are behind them? Well, I guess it's a pretty simple answer to that. If you agree with the reasons of, that the legislators have, then it makes it easier for you. And if you disagree with the reason that the legislators have, then it makes it more difficult for you. If you heard the debate in Congress about passing a specific law with a specific tax attached to it, and you didn't like the arguments of the, uh, of the congressman on the, uh, uh, on the issue, then it might make it more likely that you would say, I don't want to pay that tax. I don't agree with their, uh, with their world outlook. So you can see that there are advantages and disadvantages to, uh, to knowing the reasons for the laws. I think that most of the laws that exist in the country, I come from Canada, and I think that most of the laws that exist in Canada and that I observe in Canada, I have no idea what the reason is. I, I, I have guesses, but I don't really know what the reason is for the laws, and I think that the reason that I observe the laws of Canada and that I assume that everybody pays all their taxes and never parks in a place where it says that you aren't allowed to, to park, I assume that the major reason that those of us who observe the law observe the law is because we believe in the general system and we don't want to go to jail. Those are the two major reasons. Not that we be believe necessarily in the specific law, not that we know necessarily what the reason is for any individual law. And there is that approach in Jewish law also that says that the only thing that's important is that a, a, a Jewish person should buy into the system and should believe in the system. Now this, of course, worked better when we also had punishment possible in Jewish, uh, in Jewish circles. And I think throughout much of Jewish history, the possibility of punishing offending Jews was the major reason why Jews were law observant. And I think that if you lived in uh, Europe 300, 400 years ago, and you were Jewish, and you didn't feel like observing the laws of Judaism 
Well, you knew that the rabbi was, uh, had many sanctions that he could take against you. He could refuse to marry you if you wanted to get married. He could refuse to educate you or your children. He could refuse to bury you in the Jewish cemetery. And there were no other options. The options were to go and listen to another religious system, become a Christian, and then be under the authority of the Christian, uh, the Christian clergy, or you could stay under the authority of the Jewish clergy. And so I, I think that the reason why the majority of people observed Jewish laws throughout the ages was because there weren't too many choices. Because the <coughs> society was structured in such a way that you needed the Jewish community. And it might be that now living in the 21st century, where we don't have a Jewish community that has power over us, where we live in a society where we can get marriage, where we can get education, where we can get burial without conforming to any kind of set of religious rules, it might be at a time like this that Ta'amea meets mode that promoting the understanding of the individual mitzvot becomes more important. Uh, we'll consider this as this, these three days of learning uh, go on. I thought that maybe I'd just begin with one example that isn't in front of you, a mitzvah that uh, arguably it is very important to understand what the reason for the mitzvah is. The mitzvah is not explained in the Torah. The Torah does not explain what the reason is. Let me just like throw the question open here. If anybody would have a guess, a theory, about what the reason is for this mitzvah. It's four words long. It's not the most famous mitzvah in the Torah, but it's one of, out of the 613 mitzvot. It says... In the book of Devarim, Deuteronomy 24, this is not on the handout in front of you, but four words long, Lo tachabol beged almana. Do not take the garment, the clothes of a widow, as collateral for a loan. That's it. That's the whole mitzvah. Lo tachabol beged almana. Somebody says, Maybe they'd like to hear context, so I'll give you context. The previous phrase says, Lo mishpat ger yatom. Do not pervert the trial, pervert justice in the trial of a stranger or a, an orphan. Don't take a widow's garment as collateral for a loan. Next verse. Remember, you were once slaves in Egypt. And God freed you from Egypt. And that's why I'm commanding you this thing. But the precise connection is between the second verse and the first verse isn't, uh, isn't very clear. But uh, what do you think? What is the reason for the mitzvah? Lo tachavol beged almana. Why are you not allowed to take a widow's article of clothing as collateral for a loan? Anybody want to uh, offer a suggestion? Please. Oh, okay. 
Good. Okay, it might be because then she wouldn't have anything to wear. Is there something specific about a widow? Why, why specifically a widow? I'm sorry? Ah, because she's poor, because she doesn't have a husband, the assumption of the text is, this is one of the theories on the subject, very good. This is one of the theories on the subject, is that Almana, generally an Almana in the ancient world was poor. And so, now what would happen, let me just press you a little bit, what would happen if you had a married woman who was dirt poor? She didn't have any money, and her husband didn't have any money. Now, if that's the reason, if you are right that that's the reason for the mitzvah, that we don't want her walking around naked, or you don't take away the clothes of a, a poor person, then obviously the law would also apply to a married woman who is, uh, who is dirt poor and only has one article of clothing. Okay, so that's one possibility. If we say that your interpretation is right, that that's the ta'am of this mitzvah, that's the reason for this mitzvah, then the result would be that we would say that this actually applies to all poor women or perhaps to all poor people. What happens if it's a man who, uh, who's extremely poor and only has one article of clothing? Would you be allowed to take his... Uh, no, you wouldn't, because if that's the ta'am of the mitzvah, then that's then it would apply also another and that it's just an example of somebody who's very poor. Okay, now why isn't it nice? Good, let me press you, please. Why isn't it nice? No, but, but let, me, let me ask, is it something specific about her being a widow, or, should, or does the text really mean don't take away the article of clothing of any human being? It's possible that it's a shorthand with an extreme case being... Right. 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 Okay. It's possible. Good. Excellent. Excellent. She is vulnerable, and perhaps she is vulnerable even if she is not poor, you might argue. And then the text really means don't take advantage. If you are a, uh, a creditor, don't take advantage of the vulnerable people in society. And it might not just mean a widow. It might mean large numbers of people that you shouldn't be taking advantage of them. And if you have somebody who is... Uh, uh, a deaf mute or something like this a vulnerable person in society because he or she can neither, uh, can neither speak uh, nor hear you might say the same rule would apply in that because they're part of the vulnerable people uh, within society okay you might say that so again the ta'am that you have given the reason that you have given for the mitzvah would affect the way that we would interpret it yes please Right. Okay. Very good. Yes. Very good. Yes. Uh, 
very nice. Because she's living alone. Well, let me ask you, then... Right. But let me ask you, then, would you say that, according to that reason, you think that this rule should also apply to a single woman who's living alone in an apartment here in Manhattan or something, something like that? Okay, but if we're trying to extrapolate... Okay, I'm asking two questions. A, what did the original legislator mean? And you're right, there weren't any single women living alone in apartments in Manhattan in, uh, in the time of the original legislation. But if we're trying to apply this to our life today, and we're trying to see how, it would, uh, how we would observe this... Uh, would we say that it would apply to any single woman or to any person living alone? That's a possibility. Uh, it depends what you see. That's right. <laughs> yes. Please. Thank you so much for, for saying that. There is an opinion in the Gemara that says that the reason why you are not allowed to take the uh, clothing of a widow as collateral is because she's got a lot to cry about. And a pers precisely the reason that you just said, you're crying about a lot of things. And to give that person something else to cry about uh, would be uh, unthinkable. But of course, again, I would ask that same question. If we say that that is the reason, then of course we would extrapolate from that. There are other people who have things to cry about. Let's say somebody who lost uh, their children, died in a freakish accident, and now they're crying about everything because they, they've lost their... So if we say that that's the principle involved, it is interesting, not surprising, uh, but it's interesting that one of the reasons that's given in the Gemara for this rule has not been offered by anybody here uh, in, this, uh, in this room. And uh, the first time that I read it in the Gemara, I was kind of surprised also to see that the Gemara was suggesting that that was the reason for this rule of not taking a widow's uh, garment as collateral. Uh, Anybody want to take one more stab at it? A surprising kind of reason? Not why? Aha. Uh -huh. Interesting thought. Not what they offer, but very nice. Yes? She was just Yes. Okay, so we could say that this is part of the general underclasses of society. I think that's a fine explanation. Not the explanation that Gemara gives, but a fine explanation of this. Please. Right? Okay, very good. That may be all that she has, and that's why she's up. But that could, uh, of course, apply to anyone. Let me give you a little bit of a hint. The, the Gemara understands that the word tachavol means to take collateral not at the time when the, uh, when the debt is first incurred. There are two kinds of collateral you can take. I borrow some money from you, and you say, I, you know, I don't trust you. Could you please give me something? And so I say, okay, here's my pen. I'm giving it to you as, uh, as collateral. The, uh, the Gemara did not understand that that's what tachvol means. Tachvol means I borrowed some money from you three months ago and said that I'd pay you back in a month. 
And then you come knocking on my door and you say, you know, you said you'd pay the money back and you haven't paid the money back yet. Uh, and I say, I don't have it, but I'll have money soon. Let me give you something now as collateral. So, takavol is understood by the Gemara as referring to that second kind of collateral. Arguably, if somebody enters into a loan kind of situation, I come to you and I say, I'd like to borrow some money from you, and I'll give you my suit jacket here as collateral. That might not be... Pro but when you're coming knocking on my door and saying, come on, you haven't paid up, you better give me something, otherwise I'm going to sue you... Uh, uh, in court, if you give me something, then I'll be... Uh, so they understood that that's what's being referred to. Tachavol means knocking on the door and demanding collateral after the uh, uh, after repayment has not taken place. So can anybody think of a reason why the Torah might say, Lo tachavol beged almanai? Oh, okay, that's an interesting thought. Is this possibly a reference... That's not what the Gemara said, but I like the way you're thinking. Is this possibly a reference to a debt that was taken on by the husband? Okay, please. Very good. So the Gemara said that it's a modesty kind of consideration. For me to be going, I think that the assumption was that the... Uh, creditor, the guy who's demanding the money back, is likely to be a man. And he's going and knocking on the door of this widow and asking her to give an article of clothing for financial uh, uh, security uh, for him. Uh, what's the, uh, how do you say it? It's hot You know, it just doesn't seem right for a man to be going and knocking on the door of this woman who is living alone, this widow, and then, but then of course, if that is the reason, would it apply to the woman who's living alone, who's single, living alone? Maybe. Would it apply to a divorcee? Maybe. Maybe with some of the other reasons, I haven't mentioned the question of the divorcee, but the, the, the question of all the other reasons that I've given, you can see you can go through them and say, does this apply to a divorcee? Are divorcees part of the underclass in society? Probably. Are divorcees part of this group? Part of it depends what the reason is for the law, how you are going to interpret the law. Now, there could be somebody who will say to me, you don't interpret, as the Gemara says, there is an opinion in the Gemara, la darshinan tamadikra. We don't look for the reason for the mitzvah. The text says, Lo tachvol beged almana. That means I am not allowed to take uh, Jackie Onassis' uh, jacket because she was an almana, and, and, but I am allowed to take the jacket of some extremely poor woman who isn't an almana, who's either single or married or something like that. You might say that that's, uh, that that's what the conclusion that you would come to if you say you don't look for the reason for the mitzvah. And I th here's actually an example where you see how, why I think it's really important to get into the business of Tom Mammy. So, yes, please. Right. And just take everything that we learned about on the image of the point of the 
until now we've always wanted to a gear or not making fun of them when they come into our ring space. Mm-hmm. Well, don't make fun of them that they were once okay for something from Carlos and now they're part of us. And mm-hmm. if this person is in a, in a, in a situation like we were three years before that. Right. Very nice. I, I think that what you're saying is, I think, a principle that most uh, commentators and uh, Jewish philosophers would agree with, that an individual mitzvah has to be read as part of a whole bunch of mitzvot. And to, to you interpret this law by considering what it says about the underclasses of society and the various other laws. Very good. Right. I think that that's a very good. I remember what I learned from my uh, from my late father, who was a very wise uh, person, who uh, said to me one time, "You have to know who it is who borrows money in North American society today. So who borrows money?" in North American society today. Most of the money that is borrowed in North American society today is borrowed by whom? By rich people. And, you know, my, my late father, who was a very successful businessman, who managed to teach me nothing about being a good businessman, uh, my late father told me that you should always owe as much money as the bank will allow you to owe. And that if, you, uh, if you're a businessman and you know what to do with money, then of course you have to borrow the maximum amount that the bank will allow you to owe. Because if you can't make more money with that money than the bank is charging you in interest, then you shouldn't be a businessman in the first place. That's, what my, that's why I didn't become a businessman, because I don't like to owe as much money as the bank will allow me to owe. I don't like to owe anything. I like to pay off my debts as soon as I, I, I get them. And that's why I'm a professor. That's why my father was a, uh, was, was a businessman, because he knew, uh, he knew how to deal with that, uh, with that kind of situation. But you're absolutely right. We have to always remember when reading rules like this that the people who were borrowing money in those days were not the rich people who were borrowing money in order to make more money. They were the poor people who couldn't figure out... Somebody would knock on my door and say, I don't have any money. I'm expecting my soya, uh, my, my soybean uh, harvest to come in in three months, and then I'll have some money, and I'll have something to eat when, my, when I can harvest my soybeans. And could I borrow money for those three months until the soybean harvest comes in? And then the harvest doesn't come in for various agricultural reasons. That was, that was the kind of situation. So you're absolutely right. When you read rules like this, you have to remember the society. But then, of course, you still extrapolate. There still is a principle. We still do have underprivileged people in our society. We still do have people. Uh, there are a few people who, uh, who ask for money from us and aren't rich. Uh, and, and, and we have to figure out how to deal with them based on what the Torah is trying to teach us. And that's why we have a gemach. That's right. Okay. Uh, that's a... Uh,
short introduction to our theme, and now I'd like to start looking at the text. Maybe I'll just tell you uh, one more thought of an introductory nature about uh, about Ta'amea Mitzvot, a, uh, a thought that I once uh, that I once heard from uh, in the name of uh, Rabbi Norman Lamb, who said that uh, you know the, the phrase Ta'amea Mitzvot is usually translated as the reasons for the commandments. But the, the Hebrew word ta'am can mean reason and it can also mean taste. He said that ta'amea mitzvot are sometimes the spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down. It's, you know, it, it makes it a little more tasty. When you're observing a law, he said, it's sometimes nice to know that there's a reason behind the law. It makes it a little more pleasant to observe the law when you know that there is a reason behind the law. Yes. Um, is there a spare copy there? Thank you. Very good. And you don't have any... Somebody want to go to the office? and uh, I'm sure the office has more copies. Of, thank you. Uh, I'll try to go slowly. Uh, the first text that you have on your handout here is perhaps one of the most famous and the most... Uh, problematic uh, text of, uh, that deals with Ta'ameha Mitzvot, and I apologize that the gremlins removed two words from the text of the English on the way I just noticed right now. I, they were there until the second last editing, anyway. Uh, if I could just ask, I will translate everything, and if, if you ever hear me w using a Hebrew term and not translating it, please yell at me. But I'm just wondering, how many people can read the Hebrew text? Okay, around half. Okay, so I'll read them in Hebrew first. If, if, if it was a smaller number, I wouldn't bother reading them in Hebrew, but I will read them in Hebrew first and then read it in English. Rav Amar, lo nitnu ha-mitzvot ela letzaret bahem et ha-briot. V'chi ma echpat le la-hakadosh baruch hu l'mi she-shochet min ha-tzavar o mi she-shochet min ha-orev. Hevei lo nitnu ha-mitzvot ela letzaret bahem et ha-briot. Rav said, Mitzvot, the commandments of the Torah, were given solely for the purpose of... Now here's the, it's the crucial word, and we don't know how to translate it, but I, I, when you translate, when you write it in English, you have to choose one meaning for it. So I chose the word to refine. I'll get back to that. For the uh, purpose of refining human beings. Why would God care? Whether we slaughter an animal by slitting its neck from the front, it's supposed to say, or from the back. Why, why in the world could God care which side of the neck of the animal the knife is held at if the animal is being slaughtered? Rather, we must say that mitzvot were given solely for the purpose of refining letzaref human beings. Uh, anybody else here among the uh, Hebrew speakers here want to take a stab at that word letzaref and uh, suggest what? Okay, now one of the meanings of Litzaref, and probably the most common meaning of Litzaref in modern Hebrew, I don't think it is the meaning here, but you're absolutely right. The most common meaning is to bring people together. So, you know, it, you could, in theory, read this text as meaning that the purpose of mitzvot is to try to bring human beings together to make us all into one big happy family, but I, you know, I, I don't think that that's the meaning of the, uh, of the word here. Uh, any, uh, any other feelings about what the Hebrew word might mean? 
connecting us to being. I don't think so. I think it really means to bring different things together. Say, Ruf is bringing, uh, combining things uh, together. Any other suggestions what that Hebrew root, Sadi Resh Pei, might mean? Generally, it's what's done with a metal. When you've got an impure metal and you put it into a fire, that's Tzeruf. That's, what, that, that's the, uh, I think that that is the meaning of the word in this context. Taking a metal and putting it into the fire, burning metal, melting me- metal down in the fire. And if that's the meaning of this text, it's a very uh, troubling kind of text. It's as if, you know, they're throwing us into the fire. They're testing us. They're testing our, if you'll pardon me, they're testing our metal. Uh, they're, they're t- I'm sorry about that. Uh, they're mitzvot kind of put us in the fire. And then we have to see how we're going to react to that situation of being in the, uh, of being in the fire. So... Here is an old text. We, we will see, as the, our session goes on this morning, ways in which Rambam and other commentators tried to deal with this text and tried to understand this text. What does it mean to say that the purpose of mitzvot is simply to refine us, to burn us, to hold us to the fire? Very nice. That's actually going to come up on page 7 or so of the handout. Uh, Ramban says, it's not so bad to say that it's to burn because when you're holding it in the fire, it's for a purpose. It's to accomplish something. Very good. Okay, so you're thinking ahead. I'm uh, very happy. Yes. Isn't this a great question? Because, you know, isn't this a troubling kind of example? Don't you think that it's more humane to be slaughtering the animal from the softer side of the neck than from the harder side of the neck? Because the animal can be, it can be slaughtered more quickly if you slaughter the animal from the softer side of the neck, from the, under, uh, from the underside of the neck, than if you try doing it from the, from the back of the neck. That's what I was always taught. That that's the reason for the rules of Shita, is to do it in the most humane way that was possible. Uh, and, and, and here's this text saying, certainly God couldn't care less which way it's as if the, the text is saying God had to choose one of them. There had to be a mitzvah. And he had to either tell us the front of the neck or the back of the neck. And it doesn't really matter because the whole purpose is just that we should be law-abiding people. And it doesn't really matter which one of those two. But you're saying, and I agree with you, you were taught, I was taught, when we were kids, we were taught that that was the purpose, that there, there's a reason for this law and this text is dismissing that possibility. Why would God care which side of the neck you slaughter that animal at? What, what difference could it make? The language of that in Hebrew is so dismissive. You know, obviously, God couldn't care which one of those two decisions you have. Very good point. Yes? How about... Yes, 
for, for a uh, for for the way a bird is put to death, which is also I think it is being done in a way that's very quick and uh, and minimizes the amount of suffering that the animal has. And this text says, at least the way we've read it in the meantime, we'll see people playing with this text as we go along. Uh, this text seems to suggest that there's no no idea behind it. It's just there has to be a legal system. There has to be laws. There's something accomplished by having us human beings observe laws, whether uh, whether they make sense or not. Yes. Right. Right. Of course, you you can easily do that. Yes. Very good. Very nice. I think you've given a, uh, a very nice explanation for the standard way of understanding this text, which says the individual mitzvah might have no particular purpose for it, but the totality of mitzvot, when you put them together, have some very obvious and very good purposes to them. And the purposes are to bring people together to, uh, uh, to teach us to be law-abiding, to teach us to think about that which life, you know, if we're putting an animal to death, that we should actually do it in a thinking manner instead of in a, just a haphazard manner, and it's true. It doesn't really matter which way we do it, but they want us to be thinking people. Very good. Okay, I'll take one more comment, and then we'll, uh, I want to move on a little. Yes. Very good. Some Jewish thinkers have argued precisely that, that Rav took a mitzvah that you might think, the way we were taught back in, uh, in grade school, that these rules were given for a specific purpose and to tell us, no, they weren't given for any purpose. That's, his, that's what Rav, uh, you might interpret Rav that way. Uh, okay, I, I, want to, uh, I want to move on uh, and uh, try to get a few more texts uh, done. Okay, there's the, uh, the famous text in the Torah that talks about the rules for kings. Uh, text number two on your handout here. Rak. Be sure to appoint over you a king that the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a fellow Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire many horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more horses. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He, the king, must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate great amounts of silver and gold. So we have a number of rules in relationship to a king. Uh, and 
I'll say a little more about it, but first of all, let's see what the, uh, what the Babylonian Talmud has to say about it in text 3. Ve'amar Rabbi Yitzchak, mitneima lo nitgalut ha'amei Torah, sh'arei shtei mikraot nitgalut ha'aman, nikshal behen gadol ha'olam. K'tiv lo yarbelo nashim, amar Shlomo, ani arbe velo asur. Uchtiv, vahilei zignat Shlomo, nashat hitu el levavo. Uchtiv, lo yarbelo susim, amar Shlomo, ani arbe velo ashiv. Uchtiv, atetzim merkava mimitzrayim, v'shesh meot, etc. Rabbi Yitzhak said, on the second page, text 3 in English, why were the reasons for the rules of the Torah not revealed? Because the revealing of the reasons for two rules caused the greatest man of the world to stumble. As it is written, a king must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. Solomon said, hmm, I can have many wives without them leading my heart astray. But it is written, when Solomon grew old, his wives let, led his heart astray. It is further written, the king, moreover, must not acquire many horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more horses. Solomon said, I can acquire many horses without taking the people back to Egypt. But it is written, Solomon's horses came from Egypt, his chariot came forth from Egypt. So what's the point of this uh, text here? It seems that text number three is saying is dangerous. When you start telling people what the reasons are for various commandments, you can get into trouble. And why can you get into trouble? Because people always think that they can, uh, that they can outsmart the, uh, the system. You find out that, you know, it says that there's no parking on that street there. You find out that the reason that it says that there's no parking on the street is because they're worried about access for fire engines, but you see that they're, you know, they widen the street or something like this and they didn't update the sign. So you say, oh, I can park here. Well, we don't do that because we're worried about, uh, about punishment. We don't, uh, don't do things like that. But the, the assumption that we all have, you know, we find out what the reason was for a law and then we say to ourselves, oh, that doesn't apply to me. I can accomplish that same goal without going through the, that law, I don't have to observe that law. Yes, you can say something, please. Right, very good, and when you're trying to, you see, I'd like to get to that point of yours very soon. Here now we're talking about places where the Torah itself explains the reasons for the mitzvah. There are two kinds of situations, situations where the Torah explains the reason, and situations where we try to come up with the various reasons for the, Torah, uh, for the rules of the Torah. And it suggests here in this, uh, in this text that there's something dangerous involved, even when the Torah itself gave the reason, or perhaps specifically when the Torah itself gave the reason, we could argue about that, in situations like this, it can end up being dangerous. It can end up being counterproductive. It can end up causing people to end up transgressing the law. Uh, I, uh, yesterday in LaGuardia Airport, I, uh, I bumped into uh, my old teacher, Professor David Berger, 
who ironically enough was flying to Toronto. I was getting off the plane from Toronto and he was flying to Toronto. He was uh, doing some December 25th teaching in Toronto and I was doing some December 25th teaching in New York. We spent around the airport uh, schmoozing for a while about uh, December the 25th. And uh, <laughs> he told me about a very interesting uh, uh, Shaila, rabbinic uh, a question submitted to a rabbi that he had seen not very long ago. Somebody wrote to the rabbi and said, this is why I was thinking about parking regulations. He said, somebody wrote to the rabbi and said, there's a street where I li- uh, a street near where I live has alternate side of the street parking regulations. And they're suspended on December the 25th. And I was wondering whether it's mutter, whether it's permissible for me to park on that street on December the 25th, because if I park there on December 25th, then I am having hana'ah, I am having enjoyment from the fact that it's a uh, that it's a Christian holiday, and is it permissible for a Jew to... Uh, Professor Berger told me that luckily the rabbi to whom the question was submitted had enough sale to say, go bring your car, it's okay. You know, I didn't, I didn't hear the argument. I'd like to read, I'd actually like to read this text. I'll send that, uh, Professor Berger an email afterwards and ask about it. I'd like to see the text. But he said, you know, so there's, you know, you know what the reason is for the mitzvah. You know, the reason that you were allowed to park out there this morning is because it's December 25th. So does that make it usher for you to, does that make it forbidden for you to park in that spot? That was the, that, but you know people who, who, who would not agree with that rabbi who gave the, yes, yes. Uh, yes, please. Yes. Right. That's right. That that seems to be what this text is suggesting. Don't give reasons for the mitzvot. Now, the, pardon me. The first time that I studied this text uh, was uh, many years ago. I had the great uh, pleasure of studying for a couple of years with uh, Nahama Leibovich of uh, of blessed memory, and uh, I used to. Uh, begin any courses that I taught at York University uh, that dealt with Bible commentaries, I used to say, instead of quoting everything that I learned in the name of Nechama Leibovich uh, by name, I'm just going to tell you now in the beginning of the class, anything good that you heard, that you hear in this course, I probably learned from Nechama. And anything that isn't that good that that you heard, I probably made up up myself. And that's the general footnote, just attribute anything good to Nechama. So... Nahama taught us this course when she was teaching us uh, Sefer Dvarim. She taught us this text when she was uh, teaching us Sefer Dvarim, and she asked the question, does this think that there are reasons for the commandments, or does this text think that there are not reasons for the commandments? Text number three. What is the assumption of this text, that there are reasons for the commandments, or that there are not Nahama was the great Socratic teacher who threw everything back at her students and forced them. Yes, of course. You have to say that there are. The question is, there's not an, they don't say you shouldn't uh, talk about Tamami so because there aren't reasons for the commandments. It says, why were they not revealed? If they were not revealed, it means that they exist. It, it, because if, if you ask the question, why were they not revealed, you could si- simply answer because they don't exist. That's why they weren't revealed. But this is assuming that there are reasons for all of the commandments, but 
there is a reason to stay quiet about them. There are all sorts of good reasons not to talk about Tamei Mitzvot. There are, uh, I think we all know some of the poorer explanations that have been given over history for various Mitzvot. I'm sure we have all bumped into people who say to us, oh, the reason that it says in the Torah that you're not allowed to eat pig is because with a, a, there was a trichinosis and no refrigeration and, uh, and now today, now that there's a, or I think Woody Allen had said that actually it only meant that there are a few restaurants in Manhattan where you're not supposed to eat pig and he's got the list there of the ones where, where you're not supposed to, uh, uh, supposed to eat pig. Uh, once you think that you have the reason then you can say, well, it doesn't apply to me anymore in the same way that uh, the King Solomon did, according to text number three. He said, I know the reason. I know that the reason doesn't apply to me. And he thought that he could outsmart the system, and he didn't. And that's why it isn't a good idea, according to this text, to be looking for Ta'ameh Hamitzot. There is, a, there is a theory like that about the Rambam. I don't accept it. I don't really think that... Uh, uh, maybe, maybe after the end of the class, I'll talk with you about why it is that I, uh, that I, that I re reject uh, that idea. It is true that the Rambam did have a, an attitude towards society where there, is, uh, there are the cognoscenti and there are the masses, and there is a, a, a large gap uh, between them. I simply can't imagine that anybody would have spent as many years codifying Jewish law, the masterpiece of the Mishneh Torah, which has to be, you know, the work of so many years for a system that he doesn't believe in and consider to be holy. You have to turn him into a liar, uh, into a great liar, and somebody who spends years working on perfecting a book describing something that he considers to be a lie. It's, it's strange to consider the, uh, the possibility of something like that. That being said, he did think that there were truths that could be shared with the, uh, with the cognoscenti that you can't share with everybody, but I don't think that one of those truths was that the Torah is a bunch of hogwash. I, don't, I, I can't believe that uh, somebody would spend so long uh, uh, writing so brilliantly about a system of law that he didn't buy into it. It just doesn't work. Yes? We're going to get to that very soon. Uh, today, tomorrow, a little, uh, a little bit of that today, most of that tomorrow. We're going to get to that issue uh, pretty soon. Uh, I threw in one uh, quotation here from uh, a not very common uh, source. Uh, Wesley was a uh, student and colleague of uh, Moses Mendelssohn. He was considered one of the, uh, one of the founders of the Haskalah movement, the Enlightenment uh, movement at the uh, end of the 18th, the beginning of the 19th. Moses Mendelssohn wrote a, 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 a translation of the Torah and he commissioned people to write commentaries on the various uh, books of the Torah and Wesley was the one who was given the job 
of writing the commentary on the book of Vayikra, on the book of uh, Leviticus. Wesley was Shomer Torah Mitzvot. He was a Torah uh, observant uh, Jew, but he was vilified by standard religious circles uh, in those days as being uh, overly modern and uh, too much into support of the Enlightenment. Um, so, here's Wesley commenting on a verse in Vayikra. The verse is not that important, just the, uh, the statement here. He quotes, Rashbam interprets the verse like this, and he's wrong, that's not right. And Ibn Ezra said something, but I, Wesley, have no idea why Ibn Ezra would think something like that. And here's his uh, statement that I'm interested in. The truth is, we shouldn't look for reasons for the mitzvot if the question has no relevance to the understanding of the pshat of the verse. Stay away from this. Amazing, you know, the Enlightenment. You would think that the that an Enlightenment thinker who's interested in uh, in rationalism in ideas that he would say that ta'ameha mitzvot is a very valuable thing. And here's Wesley writing. I don't know why these medievals, these guys back in the 12th century, are trying to explain the reason behind the commandment. Just leave it be. If it doesn't help me understand the verse of the Torah any better, I don't want to do that. Uh, I think that as these three days go on, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about this, uh, this kind of uh, approach that says that there is uh, nothing to be accomplished. There's the religious argumentation that says, I might be distorting the laws of God. God might have a reason and I might be giving the wrong reason. There's the practical argument against Ta'amea Mitzvot that says, since I might give the wrong, uh, the, the wrong reason, uh, like explanation that uh, pig is uh, an unhealthy thing to eat. And we know a lot of people who eat pig and who don't, uh, don't get sick. And so maybe it's not such a good idea to give a, uh, an explanation like that because it might be the, uh, it might be the, wrong, uh, the, the wrong explanation. Uh, there's a... Uh, Controversy, even in some Jewish circles these days, about the question when uh, trying to talk about the alleged uh, health benefits of circumcision. Uh, it seems that medical science about circumcision seems to, to change every decade of my life. There seems to have been a different consensus, always with certainty. There was always a certain. Either it's very clear that uh, if a woman has a partner who is circumcised and there's less cancer of the uterus, I've heard this with, said with, uh, with certainty by, by physicians who weren't necessarily religious Jews and then by people who say that uh, the circumcision is a, a bad idea and that the health uh, risks involved with circumcision are, uh, are much greater than any possible health benefits. And uh, is it a good idea to publish books where you write that the reason for circumcision, God obviously gave the law of circumcision to the Jewish people because it would make them into a healthier people. Is it a good idea to do that when medical science is going to change its mind every decade about the issue? So there are all sorts of uh, arguments about why to avoid ta'ameh ha-mitzvot. 
But perhaps the most shocking argument about why to avoid Ta'amei thought is uh, quoted and ridiculed by Rambam, by Moses Maimonides in the 12th century in his famous guide of the perplexed in text right here. Uh, and of course, why do you have uh, the guide of the perplexed only in uh, English on this handout? Because it was written in Judeo-Arabic, and uh, I don't know about you people, but my Judeo-Arabic needs improvement. And so I did not give it to you in the, uh, in the original Judeo-Arabic here. Um, there are people who find it difficult to give a reason for any of the commandments. There are people who don't like doing Ta'amea Mitzvot. And they consider it right to assume that the commandments and the prohibitions have no rational basis, whatever. That's what they would prefer. They say that they're, they don't have reasons behind them. They are led to adopt this theory by a certain disease in their soul. You know, Rambam never minces words. Uh, he says, you know why they think that way? Because they're sick. And I'm going to tell you, I'm a physician, and I am going to explain to you what the sickness that these people have in their soul is. The existence of which they perceive, but which they are unable to discuss or to describe. They, they, don't know, they, they know about their illness, but they don't really understand their own illness. I understand their illness. For they imagine that these precepts, if they were useful in any respect, and were commanded because of their usefulness, might seem to originate in the thought and reason of some intelligent being. But if they are not objects of reason and serve no purpose, they must undoubtedly be attributed to God since no thought of man could have produced them. Understand? If they were rational, then they could have been legislated by rational people, like members of Congress or Senate. Well, you can decide whether they're rational people or not. But human beings are able to come up with rational laws. And if the laws of the Torah simply have rational reasons, just like the laws of the United States of America have rational reasons, then there's nothing particularly special about them. But if the laws do not have rational explanations for them, that makes them more special. That makes them better. That makes them holier. That makes them more divine. Right, that's what he's going to say right now. Precisely, he's saying there are people who think this way and they are sick. And, and their sickness is that they think that God is irrational. That's what he's going to say right now. Now, in case you think that he's making up the existence of people like this, I'll just tell you that when I was in uh, yeshiva in Israel in, uh, in the early 1970s, uh, I remember one time going to one of my teachers and say, I read some kind of rule in the Gemara that troubled me ethically. I was 18, 19 years old, and I uh, go up to the teacher and say, you know, this really bothers me, this rule in the, uh, in the Gemara. Can you help me deal with this? And my teacher turned to me and said, you know, Mayor, that's my Hebrew, I said, you know, Mayor, if you understood all the rules, then it would be a sign that they're rational and they come from human beings. But the reason that some of these rules don't uh, appeal to you rationally is because they're divine. And, you know, you aren't divine. And you don't... Uh, and so, you know, I thought about that for, for a while. 
And then a few years later, I'm sitting there reading the Rambam. I hadn't read the Guide of the Perplexed when I was 18 years old. And I was sitting there reading it, and I said, Aha! He's talking about that teacher of mine back there in Yeshiva who had said to me that that makes it holier, it makes it more divine if you don't understand it. The teacher did not want to take the effort of trying to explain that rule to me. And he just used the standard kappa. You don't understand it? It's because it comes from God. And he said, Okay. Uh, so let's get back to the text. Uh, if they are objects of, if they are not objects of reason to serve no purpose, they must undoubtedly be attributed to God, since no thought of man could have produced them. According to the theory of these weak-minded people, man is more perfect than his creator. For what man says or does as a certain object, while the actions of God are different, He commands us to do what is of no use to us and permits us to do what is harmless. That's what it, that's what comes out of this. It means that God, that human beings give us laws that have rational purposes to them and God gives us laws that don't have any rational purpose to it. Far be this. He says, Chas v'shalom, chas v'chalila. Yes. Super rational, okay. Right, right okay. We will see people in these course of three days talking about Tamami, so we will see people who don't think that it's an illness, but Rambam, the rationalist, feels that it is an illness to say something like that. Yes, yes, yes I, that's right. I believe because it is absurd, the famous uh, quotation from Augustine, right? As, uh, first. I think it was, uh, you think even earlier than Augustine, maybe. Yes, Mark. In Toronto? The yeah. Oh, no. Yes. based on rational on natural law they have to be very interesting theory that if the to okay uh, An interesting theory. Uh, Martin is, is quoting a, 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 an 
article, uh, I presume by David Novak, yeah. yes, uh, who teaches at the other university in Toronto, uh, <laughs> who, uh, who argues that the Torah presumes natural law. Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein of, uh, of Yeshivat uh, Haritzion also wrote an article entitled, Does Judaism Accept the Idea of an Ethic That Is Independent of Halakha? And comes to the conclusion at the end of the article that it does. That there is, aside from the halachic system, there is this kind of natural ethical system in the world that is kind of presumed by the uh, by Jewish thinkers through the years. And Martin is saying on the basis, I, I don't remember the specific article of Professor Novak on the on on the subject, but it can be argued that if the presumption of the system is that there is a system of natural rational law. Uh, out there, that means that the Torah came along to add the kind of supernatural law, the supernatural the, the, that which builds on the uh, on the natural law, which might not be subjected to the uh, rules of rationalism. A very interesting perspective, not Rambam's perspective. So let's get back to to, uh, to and we will see that in the course of these next three days, we will see people with that kind of approach. But Rambam's approach is, of course, the texts have to be rational. Uh, on the contrary, the sole object of the law is to benefit us. Thus we explain the scriptural passage for our good always that he might preserve us alive as it is to this day. Or uh, the people will hear all these statues, the chukim, and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. This verse is saying that even one of these statues, the word chukim, which we, those of you who went to day schools were taught that a chok is a rule that doesn't have a reason for it, which is a definition that I don't like and that Rambam doesn't like, but that's the definition that's very often taught about the word chok. And he says here, note... It talks about these chukim. People will hear about these chukim and they will say, what a great am chacham v'navon ha'goy ha'gadol hazet. People will hear about our chukim and they will say, gee, what a wise nation the Israelites are. And he notes this. He said, notice the word there is chukim, the one that they're telling you back in your day school, that chok means a rule that doesn't have any reason to it. And here it's saying that when the nations hear about your chukim, they will say, what a wise nation we have here. The verse is saying that even one of these chukim convinces all the nations of the wisdom and the understanding of the people. But if no reason could be found for these chukim, if they produce no advantage and remove no evil, why then should he who believes in them and follows them be wise, reasonable, and so excellent is to raise the admiration of all the nations. It doesn't make any sense to say that um, to say that the Chukim have no reason for them. So that's the Rambam's the introduction to the position of the Rambam. But we will see very soon that Rambam's uh, position does become more complicated along the way. Uh, yes. No, he's not saying that. He's saying, this is the introduction to him saying, and now I am going to explain all the reasons of the Torah to you. And he will spend the next 30 chapters of the Guide of the Perplexed going through most of the 613 mitzvot, one after the other, and said, if you don't understand it, here, I'm going to give you the explanation. And he really, he believes that's a good thing to do, and it's justifiable to do, and it's a, 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 a fine thing to do. Okay. Uh, 
we, in Dresha, we like to believe in Chavruta learning, and I'd like to kind of set up uh, a little bit, 10 minutes or so of Chavruta learning, where we will uh, ask you to pair yourselves up and look at some text, but let me set it up uh, for you. Uh, the, t- the, 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 the Torah text is at the center of this discussion is text number 6, uh, at the top of page 3. If you come across a bird's nest beside the road, either in a tree or on the ground, and the mother is sitting on the young or on the eggs, do not take the mother together with the young. You may take the young, but be sure to let the mother go first so that it may go well with you and you may have a long life. A uh, couple of years ago, my, uh, my second uh, son-in-law, uh, some of you in the room might know him, Seth Winberg, was, uh, was uh, a student in Israel and he was living in an apartment in Jerusalem and he phoned me up on, uh, from his apartment and he said, I've got a problem, I've got a bird's nest that has just been built on my porch here in Jerusalem and there's a mother sitting on the, uh, uh, on the uh, eggs and uh, do, do I have to do this mitzvah? Do I have to? You know, the Torah it says, uh, yes, okay, but he found it. It says, if, if you find it. And he found it. He said, I walked out on my porch. Is there a, or does it just mean that if I want to, and if I want to get rid of this bird's nest, I really would rather not have a bird's nest on my porch here in my apartment in Jerusalem. Am I allowed to just get rid of the whole thing? And, you know, and how do I do it? And we had this long, learned discussion uh, over the phone. Uh, and th- then he discovered that it is very difficult to send away the mother from the bird's nest. Uh, you know, you, se- you send away the mother from the bird. I told him that there was no religious obligation to fulfill uh, this mitzvah, but to clean off his porch uh, if he wished to do that was uh, permissible, but he tried sending away the mother and the mother didn't want to go away. Uh, not, not the easiest thing. But anyways, we have this mitzvah. Does the Torah tell us a reason for it? No. Well, it gives us a kind of incentive for it. It says, so that it may go well with you and you may have a long life. That's an incentive as opposed to a reason. Uh, pardon me? It's a yes, uh, yes, a veiled threat. It will go well for you, and you will have a long life. Otherwise, you will not. It will not go well for you, and you will not have a long life. Uh, however, there's a famous passage in the Babylonian Talmud. This is number seven on your text here. The Mishnah says, "Ha'omer al modim modim." Moto, a person who says, the Mishnah 7, a person who says in prayer, may your ex- may, turns to God and says, may your mercy extend to a bird's nest. Or, may your name be remembered for good. Or, modim modim should be silent. These are three examples of inappropriate prayers according to the Mishnah. If you have a uh, prayer leader, somebody who's leading the service, and says one of these three texts, he sh- the leader should be told, don't say that. That's not an appropriate prayer. And the Gemara discusses what's wrong with each one of these prayers. We're not going to go through all of them right now, but just the one, which I translated as, may your mercy extend to a bird's nest. It might mean, it might mean the same way that you had mercy on a bird's nest, we hope, God, that you will have mercy on us. That might be the meaning of the text. 
case, the Gemara says, why is this an inappropriate prayer? What's wrong with this prayer? Two rabbis in the West, the land of Israel. Of course, if you're sitting in Babylonia, in, uh, uh, when, when you're sitting in Iran, Iraq, uh, and you're thinking about uh, the land of Israel, it's in the West. Two rabbis in the West, Rabbi Yossi Ben Abin and Rabbi Yossi Bar Zaveda, disputed the question. So often Talmudic discussions are phrased this way. They remember that there were two rabbis named Yossi who expressed two different opinions on the subject. They don't remember which one of them said what. Here, here are the two things said by the two Yossis who live in Eretz Israel on the subject. One of them said it is inappropriate, it's an inappropriate prayer because it implies that God has favorites among his creatures. You know, that God likes birds better than he likes frogs. And that's not, uh, not nice to say that God has favorites among the a- in the animal kingdom. The other one said it is inappropriate because it portrays God's attributes as mercy when they are really only decrees. The thing that is wrong with this prayer, a non elagzerot, all they are are decrees. Don't tell me that that law about the bird's nest has anything to do with mercy is the position of, uh, of the, one of the two Yossis. Okay, so that's set up the issue. We have a law in the Torah that says when you see a bird's nest, don't take the mother and the babies or the mother and the eggs. Send away the mother first and then you can take the eggs or the chicks. I'm guessing that if I had just read that law and asked people, can you come up with a reason for that law, that it wouldn't have been the most challenging thing in the world to come up with a reason uh, for that law. But here we open the Gemara, and the Gemara says, anybody who stands leading the prayers and stands in front of the congregation and says these words has said something inappropriate. You're not supposed to say something like that when you're leading the prayer because it's wrong, because it has the wrong approach to Judaism, it has the wrong approach to, uh, to Jewish philosophy. God's laws have nothing to do with mercy. It's a strange phrase. For those of you who can follow the Hebrew, the phrase is strange. It turns God's midot. I've always been looking for a manuscript that might read mitzvotav, instead of Midotav, uh, but I've never managed to find one. Uh, I think it might be, uh, might be a good text if it said that, but it doesn't. So, you know, I translated the text as it is without, uh, without emending it. It turns God's attributes into mercy, but actually God just gives decrees. Don't talk about God's mercy about these birds. Okay, so there we have the, uh, we have the uh, text that up and yes shouldn't say the word modim twice is the standard explanation yes if the reader when he gets to modim says modim modim the Gemara says we suspect that person of being a Gnostic who believes in two, uh, two gods up there, uh, a force of good and a force of evil, and we are worried that he's saying Modim twice because uh, these are specific 
religious problems that existed back in the second century when the Mishnah was being composed where there was a concern about Jews who had Gnostic kind of uh, beliefs. That's a common understanding of, uh, of modim modim. Uh, yes, please. Okay, I, I see that everybody likes to study Torah. That's great. That's wonderful. I won't... Uh, yes. Uh, the Gemara says the problem is Again, it kind of goes with the problem of the Persian Gnostic kind of approach of saying that there's a force of good and a force of evil. And saying, God, we connect you with the forces of good in the world. And when there's evil, we know that it has nothing to do with you. It seems to be the implication. Uh, we, connect, uh, we think of you, God, when, when things go well uh, in this world. It was concern. Perhaps it was a well... Uh, grounded concern at the time. None of us lived in the second century, so we don't know, but it's possible the people who were saying these words, really were part of a Gnostic group like this that believed in forces of good and forces of evil in the world, and we wanted to keep that out of our prayer service. Okay, I'd like people to uh, find somebody that they know or that they don't know, as you wish, and read through text 8 and if you get time, you can read through Rambam's long section here, text 10 through 15. And let me ask you some of the uh, questions to think about here. Uh, well, what's Rambam's position about this issue? Is it consistent? Are all the texts that you are going to be reading here consistent one with another? The text of the Rambam, I'm just asking if he's consistent with himself. Uh, you have texts from two different works of his. The Mishneh Torah is his great compendium of Jewish law, which he wrote probably in his uh, late 40s or early 50s. And the Guide of the Perplexed is the text that he wrote in his 60s uh, towards the end of uh, his life, his great work of Jewish philosophy. So you're comparing what he writes about this issue in, uh, in the Mishneh Torah and in the Guide of the Perplexed. And then consider what he has to say in general about rules of the Torah in the section from the Guide of Perplex 326, which is text 10 through 15. We'll just uh, have 10 minutes or so of Chavruta time. Do as much of the reading as you can together with each other. And then we will reconvene here to discuss those texts. And I'm available. There weren't reasons. Uh, in 8, yes. So Rambam says in 8 that, it, you know, he uh, quotes that Mishnah and the Gemara there, that you're not supposed to say that prayer, may your mercy extend to a bird's nest, and why not? For these laws are simply decrees. This is the second last line of page 3. They are not about mercy. Mitzvot elu gzerat enan rachamim. They have nothing to... They're just gzerot, just decrees. They don't have a reason to them. I think that he is quoting, but notice that the Gemara provided two explanations, and he chose one of those two explanations. He didn't have to. He could, you know, the, that's why I gave you that whole text of the Gemara, that there were two explanations provided by two rabbis by the name of Yossi, uh, both of whom came from Eretz Yisrael. And one of them gave a different explanation. And he was not, he wasn't really obligated as a, you know, as a halachist that he had to explain it the way the second Yossi explained it. 
And for reasons that I really don't know, in the bottom line, I, I don't know why he did this. He writes, you know, mitzvot eluk zerat rachamim. But then, what does he do in text nine? As he's going through the 613 mitzvot, one after another, he comes to the line, he comes to the mitzvah about letting the mother bird fly away. Yes? Please. Yes? That's right. And yes? Right. Right. He could have avoided the whole thing, but you're right. Not only does he quote it, the question was, does he quote or is it him writing? And so I think the answer is both. He's quoting and he's expanding it. He's explaining the rationale behind it. And I, I thought before I talked to his text, I really should have apologized to any of the vegetarians that are in the room that, uh, you know, the assumption of all the texts here is that it's okay to be eating animals. And I, I don't eat a lot of meat, but I do eat meat uh, from, from time to time. And, uh, and uh, some of the other texts that will be coming up over the next couple of days, just to warn you in advance, will uh, assume that it is okay for human beings to be, uh, to be consuming animals uh, from time to time. And that certainly is the Rambam's assumption that it's okay for human beings to... But he said, if that was the reason, why would God say the slaughter is allowed at all? If it was about mercy, so it couldn't be about mercy, Rambam says. It must just be a decree. So that's what he says in 8. Very good. I, a, a, a fine explanation to, to say that are, they make it so difficult for, uh, for human beings to, uh, to eat meat, that it cuts down on the amount of meat that, they, that the Torah wished to move us in that direction towards a vegetarian worldview. There's an opinion that's attributed to uh, the late uh, first chief rabbi of Israel, Rabbi Cook, who was not a vegetarian despite the fact that he said, no, he, he, had, an art, he had a little booklet he once uh, published called Chazonat Tzimchonut Shalom, the vision of vegetarianism and of peace, where, where he saw this as a vision of something to strive to, but he wasn't a, uh, he wasn't a vegetarian. But you're right, uh, you know, my, uh, my daughter and son-in-law who live here in Manhattan, I remember when they moved into their apartment, Columbia University Housing, and they phoned me up, another Shiloh from my son-in-law. So I'm quoting all sorts of interesting uh, re uh, religious uh, questions submitted to me by my son-in-law who phoned me up and said, my kitchen in this apartment is less than four amot by four amot, four cubits by four cubits. And I think I once read in the Shulchan Aruch that a room does not require a mezuzah if it is less than four amot by four amot. And I said, Seth, go measure it again. You know, I think that like the area where the cupboards are, you're supposed to count that too. He said, Abba, I'm, I'm counting every possible inch in this kitchen of mine. And it is not for, that I came to visit them here in Manhattan. And it is very true. The kitchen is not for amot by for amot. And it does not have a mezuzah. Because that's what halacha says. You don't need a mezuzah, a room that isn't for amot for a moat. And why do I mention that? Because my daughter and son-in-law 
came to, I think, the extremely reasonable conclusion that it made sense either to have an apartment that was entirely halavi or an apartment that was entirely bisari, either only to eat meat or only to eat milk. And they, so they have a, uh, a milchik's uh, apartment and they never have any meat in their apartment because of so again, as you said, where you have all these rules, it can, it can cut down on the amount of uh, consumption of meat. So I agree entirely with that. Uh, perspective. Anyways, Rambam says in 8 that it's not, uh, that this has nothing to do with mercy. And then in 9 he says, he provides a reason for the mitzvah of uh, not having, uh, not taking the mother and the young. The Torah provides that such grief should not be caused to cattle or birds. That's what the Torah is interested in, not causing grief to that animal. The idea that the mother will be watching as her uh, chicks or as her eggs are taken away will be causing grief to this animal. And that's why the Torah says that you don't do it because you don't cause that kind of grief. And then he says, now I know that some of you might have studied some Gemara. And you might have read that text in Brachot that uh, blames those who use in their prayer the phrase, may your mercy extend to a bird's nest. And what does he say? Well, that's that other school of thought. That follows the school of thought that says that there are no reasons for the mitzvot. And I told you back in text number five that there are people who, at the bottom of page two, that there are people, there is this school of thought of people who are sick, who've got an illness, who thinks that there's no reason for the mitzvot. So this is, this is an amazing text. Nine is an amazing text, in, even, even without having it juxtaposed to eight. Nine is an amazing text. He's taking a rabbinic statement, he's taking a line from the Gemara, and he's saying, that line follows the worldview of the people who, back in Guide of the Perplexed 331, I called those people sick. And, uh, but he says in 331, there are two kinds of Jews. There are Jews who think that the mitzvot have reasons for them, and there are Jews who think that the mitzvot don't have reasons to them. And that line in the Gemara, that comes from that other group. The Jews who think that the mitzvot do not have reasons for them. The ones that I think are sick. Uh, the, the ones who have an illness in their soul. That you can what? I'm sorry? The implications of nine, very good. The implications of nine ought to be that there would be nothing wrong with saying such a prayer. But in his halachic work, in eight, he said, you silence somebody. You see, we have these two works that he wrote. We have his work of Jewish law and his work of Jewish philosophy. And I was not the first person who discovered this contradiction between Rambam's work of Jewish law and his work of Jewish philosophy. Much ill ink has been spilled in trying to solve this contradiction between these two texts. And nothing that I have read really appeals to me. And I don't have any deus ex machina, any wonderful grand uh, solution, only to point out that this tension that exists here. The first, and I think my, perhaps maybe even the most reasonable uh, explanation, uh, other than the question of audience, which we'll talk about the question of audience, but might be that 15 to 20 years went by between the writing of these two works. And 
I'll tell you, every time that I open my first book that got published in 1985, my hands are shaking as I open it because I'm thinking to myself, what did I think in the early 1980s when I was writing this book and do I still agree with what I wrote and what's sitting there in print and what's unchangeable right now uh, because it's uh, the, the and often I say hey I still agree with that guy uh, who, who lived in the uh, in the early 80s and wrote that but every once in a while I sit there no, that, did I really write that? There's nothing. Can I go around telling everybody that I've changed my mind? Uh, so you, you put a little footnote into some later volume of yours, and you say, "I, I am now retreating from what I wrote on page 179 in uh, in the book that I, and you hope that somebody will read that footnote so that you you feel that you've because uh, you you do learn, you do change your mind. How many people in this room agree with everything that they thought 23 years ago? Uh, you know, I. I uh, I doubt if there are very many people who agree. And there are some of, who aren't 23 years old. So, the, it's not, but but those who those who are uh, uh, who can remember having thoughts 23 uh, years ago, uh, many of us don't agree with the things that we. So so. That's right. That's right. Uh, some people say that is why the universities are set up in the publisher parish kind of uh, uh, of, uh, of uh, structure because the tendency to avoid publishing. I, I understand entirely the tendency to avoid publishing because you don't. Uh, you're going to grow after you publish. After you publish a book, you're going to change your mind. You're going to learn more about the subject, and you're going to think something different about the subject. So it's possible that Rambam. The, you know, he didn't write these th things in the same work. Not, Rambam, in the introduction to the Guide of the Perplexed, uh, has this fascinating text where he says, there are seven kinds of contradictions that you can find in a work. Uh, contradictions that are based on sloppiness. Contradictions that, that are based on the author changing his mind. He gives a whole introduction. He said, if you find any contradictions in this work of mine, know that they are of type 3 and type 7. And, and you know, that, that, it's, it's an amazing way of, uh, of dealing with the issue of contradiction. But that's within that one work. He doesn't say what to do when you find a contradiction between his halachic work and his philosophic work. Now, it's possible to say that halachically speaking, you're, you, follow this, uh, you, fo you, you follow one position, but in... What should be your belief system? He wants your belief system to be something good, but not to act on the basis of that. that that's an amazing uh, idea to, to attribute that to Rambam, to say that he wants that, that you... Uh, I want you to behave in a specific way. Going back to that question that you asked right in the beginning, could Rambam have been hinting that he didn't want people to be observing all of these mitzvot? And I said, it's unthinkable to think that. And, but notice, if you read these two together and you say that he didn't change his mind, then he's saying, here's what you should think and here's what you should do and they aren't necessarily consistent with each other and that's just fine. And I bet you Rambam knew very well when he wrote what he wrote in the Guide of the Perplexed, he remembered what he wrote better than I remember what I wrote in the 1980s. The Rambam remembered very well what he had written in, uh, in the Mishneh Torah, and he still did it. 
because maybe he believes that there is this gap between uh, that there is, that there are ways in which we govern our behavior and ways in which we govern our uh, our belief system. Uh, that Right. Really difficult for the modern mind to uh, to accept that. Yes, Martin. agree with you entirely. He's saying this specific mitzvah. He's saying it about this specific mitzvah. It's Elu. I hear what you're saying. Martin is suggesting that uh, perhaps he's only uh, dismissing the suggestion that the law about the bird's nest has something to do with mercy, but that Rambam would still believe that the law about the bird's nest has something to do with some other idea, that there is another ta'am to it. But I don't see that in those Hebrew words, gezerat hakatu hein ve'enan rachamim. Gezerat hakatu is the standard... Uh, 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 from Talmudic literature that I think means a decree without a reason. It's just, it is a decree. And I think that if he wanted, if he thought that there was another reason for it, he should have given it to us. He should have said, it has nothing to do with mercy and it has something to do with uh, avian rights. Or he should tell us why that, in order to say it has nothing to do with mercy and why that prayer is, that, that it would be good if he told us what the other reason was. And then when he comes to write his book in which he is saying what the reasons are, he uses the word mercy to, de to describe, or at least, not causing grief to, uh, to other animals. And, and he sees this reason as being in opposition to, uh, to the statement of the rabbis in the Gemara and dismissing, actually, the statement of the rabbis in the Gemara. Yes? Right, that's what Martin was suggesting also. Maybe that there is, he feels that there is a reason, but that, uh, but that it wasn't Rachamim, but I don't see that in his words. I, you know, I, if I were the Rambam, I'm sorry to be so pretentious, I would have phrased eight differently if that's what I felt. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't have written it that way if that's what I felt. Were you going to say something? Right. Uh, 
Very nicely said, but I don't think that we usually attribute that approach to Rambam. I'm, I'm not saying that it's impossible, but usually Rambam is seen as the person who feels that your mind and your actions ought to be in sync with each other. And here we have an example of him seeming to speak from both sides of his mouth on this uh, issue. Is it or isn't it about mercy? Yes. You see, it is possible that, uh, to, to, to build on what you're saying and to say that Rambam is particularly displeased with the idea of elevating this kind of idea to putting it into the prayer service. And that that's what really bugs him, uh, is taking this... I can say this philosophically, and it's very good, and we should study it philosophically, but to, to move this into the prayer service, to... Uh, to codify this, so to speak, in the prayers, to take this idea and put it into the prayers, he's, he's upset about that. Again, though, it seems to me that I, if that was my approach, I'd be, uh, I'd be writing number eight in a slightly, uh, in a slightly different manner. For those of you uh, who weren't aware, there was much opposition in Jewish circles to the Moran of Uchim, to the Guide of the Perplexed. It was even burned at one point in, uh, in northern France, and there were uh, rules that were made against studying it until a, a specific age or in studying it at all. And uh, there are some Jews, and conversely, there are Jews who adopt the kind of quote, uh, approach that you were taking before, that the Mishneh Torah was only written for the masses and the Rambam didn't really believe in it, and the only thing he truly believed in was the guide of the perplexed. I'd like to think the Rambam is a more complex and more interesting uh, uh, person, and that he has, uh, he has both of these uh, sides to him. Yes? right there they're not all that different from each other um, okay now I don't know how many of you got a chance to read through the next uh, large section from the guide of the perplexed uh, text 10 uh, through 15 there Rambam uh, has taken a slight retreat from uh, I think the position that we have attributed to him until now, uh, would somebody like to sum up what, in what way has Rambam retreated a little bit from his claim that mitzvot, his claim in the Guide of the Perplexed, that it is important 
and good to try to find the reasons behind the commandments. Um, he quotes that text there, the first text that we saw today about litzaref et habriot, and he understands that litzaref is to test, and he uh, he sees this text because of that as contradicting his general principle that that mitzvot do have reasons for it. Um, uh, the end of text. Although this passage is very strange and is unique in the writings of our rabbis, I explain it as you shall soon hear in such a manner that I remain in accord with the meaning of their words and I do not depart from the principle which we agreed upon that the commandments serve a useful object. Watch me, says Rambam. Uh, you think that that text, text number one that we did today, is in contradiction with my idea that the mitzvot should be given reasons. They aren't. And I am going to explain that text in such a way that uh, I am not doing a disservice to the rabbis. And I'm explaining their words well. And I can still stick with my position that it is good to look for reasons for the commandments. And what is his solution? Did anybody uh, read through it and wishes to summarize what is the solution at which he uh, arrives? The general character can have a reason. Excellent. Excellent. That in general, you should try to find for each mitzvah a reason for it. And no, there is no mitzvah out there that has no reason to it. But once you come to the details, Rambam says, give me a break. Uh, you know, you can't find an explanation for every detail. And he says this extremely strongly. Uh, so, it, it, again, it's the, uh, the uh, audacity of what Rambam does here in this text. He kind of says what we said in the beginning. We wouldn't have chosen that example of slitting the neck of the animal because actually that's pretty reasonable. We understand why the neck of the animal is slit from the front instead of from the back. As he writes at the end of 11, uh, uh, or I'm sorry, in 12, uh, it's in order to ensure an easy death. Our rabbis insisted that the knife should be, you know, all these details, these details make sense. But he said, if I were writing that rabbinic text, I would have written it uh, a little differently. In order to get across the point that the details don't always have reasons for them, a more suitable instance can be cited from the detailed commandments concerning sacrifices. The law that sacrifices should be brought is evidently of great use as will be shown by us. I'm going to explain why sacrifices in general are good, but we cannot say why one offering should be a lamb while another one is a ram, and why a fixed number of them should be brought. Why two on one day and why seven on another day? Who knows? Those who trouble themselves to find a cause for any of these detailed rules are, in my eyes, void of sense. So Rambam has now, uh, if you'll pardon me for uh, putting it this way, he's this two groups of people. Those who don't look for ta'amim for the mitzvot, those who don't look for any reasons for the mitzvot, they're sick. And those who look for too many uh, the, uh, explanations. I think that it's okay to explain reasons for the mitzvot up to a particular point, but beyond that point, if you go there, you have gone too far. Yes, Ariel. Yes, there's a, there's a golden mean in looking for, as in all things in life, Rambam argues that there's a golden mean. You should be looking for reasons for the mitzvot, but 
don't look for the reasons for every detail of every mitzvah. Oh no. Read on. He does not say that. Let's read 13. He's saying that there aren't reasons for all the details. Those who trouble themselves to find a cause for any of these detailed rules are in my eyes void of sense. They do not remove any difficulties. They rather increase them. Those who believe that these detailed rules originate in a certain cause, is the bottom of page 4, those who believe that these detailed rules originate in, in a certain cause are as far from truth as those who assume that the whole law is useless. Both of them are wrong. The group who thinks that every single detail has a reason for it was certainly the group that you were referring to in the back there, you were referring to before the, uh, the, this kind of mystical approach that every detail, of course, helps me plug into those worlds out there. It's possible that he's alluding to that kind of approach here in this line here at the bottom of page 4 and the top of page 5. Those who think that every one of the details serves a purpose, that's bad. Those who think that none of the details serve any purpose, that's bad. Both of those are bad, but we should be trying to find a general rational reason for each mitzvah without getting bogged down in the de- bogged down in the details. You must know. Let's just read to the end of this section so we understand his uh, perspective clearly. You must know the divine wisdom demanded, or if you prefer, say, that circumstances made it necessary that there should be parts of his work which have no certain object. Not that we can't figure out what the object is. They have no certain object, no goal. Let me just finish to the end. And as regards the Torah, it appears to be impossible that it should not include some matter of this kind. In all laws, there are rules that you can't explain every last detail, and the Torah is not different. It cannot be avoided, maybe seen from the following instance. You ask, why must a lamb be sacrificed and not a ram? But the same could be asked why a ram had been commanded instead of a lamb. So you're trying to figure out why on this holiday does it say to sacrifice a lamb instead of a ram? And he says, well, if we'd done the opposite, you'd be asking the same question. And so don't ask. The same could be asked why a ram had been commanded instead of a lamb so long as one particular kind is required. The same could be said as to why seven lambs were sacrificed and not eight. Again, that's something that a mystic might be very might find to be extremely meaningful and Rambam might know that some mystical writings are being written in his days in the end of the 12th century that are trying to explain why seven lambs on this day and eight on that day and he he had none of that because on a rational basis he can't come up with any distinction why seven on one day and eight on another day so he says don't go there. The same question might have been asked if there were eight or ten or twenty lambs. You know, the, the Torah feels that it should legislate a certain number and then it legislates the number and the number doesn't have any particular reason for it. It could have been another number and there's an arbitrariness in the details that Rambam is insisting on the right of saying that the details are arbitrary so long as some definite number of lambs were sacrificed. The repeated assertion of our rabbis that there are reasons for all commandments and the tradition that Solomon knew them there's a, that, the Sol, that you see there is an opinion that says and you know, I, I back up a little bit. I mentioned before that we are often taught that chukim statutes are reason are, are mitzvot that do not have any reasons uh, for them. The more common understanding in rabbinic literature are chukim, is that chukim are rules that it is difficult to know the reason for them. Not that they do not have a reason. And Rambam writes this 
clearly in his uh, in his uh, in his Moran of and in other words, that the definition of a chok is a rule that it is difficult to figure out what its reason is. It's a rule that is often mocked by people, and even Rashi, who's not a philosopher. Most of the time when he writes about the word chok, with one passage being uh, difficult to explain, but most of the time when Rashi writes about the word chok, he says that chok are rules that people mock because they think that they do not have reasons for them. In one passage, Rashi does use the words that they don't have reasons for them. And I think that whole basis of the suggestion that chok means a law that doesn't have a reason for it is based on just one passage in Rashi where he says that generally a chok is a rule that it's difficult to understand. So the Gemara says that the rules of the red heifer, which are uh, very difficult to understand, nobody understood them except for Solomon. Meaning that they're understandable, but that you have to work for many years in order to be able to understand those kinds of rules. Please. That's very nice. And that is actually what Ramban is going to say. I'm not sure that we're actually going to get there, but the uh, texts that are numbered uh, 22 and following, that is Ramban's theory. That, that whole business is only trying to say, don't think that God has mercy on the birds, but God wants me to behave towards you in a merciful way, and wants you to behave towards me in a merciful way. And the way of training me to behave mercifully towards you is by asking me to behave uh, mercifully towards this, uh, towards this bird's nest. And... Uh, it is not that God has. It is not because God has mercy on the birds. Because if He did, He'd say you're not allowed to slaughter birds. You're not allowed to eat birds. And uh, and people eat uh, chickens on a the Jews eat chicken on a very uh, regular basis. Or many Jews eat chicken on a regular basis. And so it couldn't be about that. But it is a connection to mercy. So. I really like that explanation, and Ramban offers that explanation. I'm still not sure that that works easily into the language of eight. Uh, again, if I were right, if I were Rambam and I thought that way, I don't think I would have phrased eight that way. But uh, that is a fine Jewish approach that personally I'm extremely comfortable with, but uh, I'm not sure that the Rambam would be. That's the question. Would he have been comfortable? Right. Right, and so it's just so so that and that was the original question: Is he really writing what he's what he's thinking, or is he? Yes. Okay, so it's possible to argue that way. Yes. No value. That's right.
Rambam's uh, uh, dismissing all of that. Don't go there. That's what. It, that's uh, precisely what he is. Uh, what he is saying. And I think it, this is just my theory on the subject. But I think that it's because he knows the kinds of explanations that are being given for those kinds of details and knows that they are generally being explained not on a rational level, but often at a mystical level. And he doesn't like that kind of way of approaching Mitzvot. And he would like to provide rational explanations for the mitzvot as much as possible and historical explanations for the mitzvot as much as possible. We'll be talking about the problems, the benefits and the drawbacks of historical explanations. You know, if we say there was a problem that existed in ancient Israel and this mitzvah is addressing the problem that existed in Israelite society 3,000 years ago, of course, uh, this is just a little preview of what's coming up in the next couple of days, uh, of course, the reaction of everybody sitting in this room is, well, that's not the problem that we have now in 21st century Manhattan. And so, if the mitzvah is addressing a problem that existed in ancient Israel 3,000 years ago, how relevant... Okay, so that's... I don't want to get, get there yet, but that's coming up on Tuesday morning and Wednesday morning. Uh, yes? Uh, so this, is, this does lead uh, many people to that kind of approach, but not the Rambam. Let me just finish 15, and then I'll take Martin's uh, comment over The repeated assertion of our rabbis that there are reasons for all commandments, and the tradition that Solomon knew them all, even the ones of the Chukim, refer to the general purpose of the commandments and not to the object of every detail. This being the case, I find it convenient to divide the 613 precepts into classes. Only very few will be left unexplained. There are a few that I am going to leave out. And he writes at the end of the Moran Nebuchim a reason why he left out the explanations. He said, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but he says something to the effect of, if only we had better archaeological findings about what was going on in ancient Israel uh, 3,000 years ago, or for him, 2,000 years ago, then we would understand every one of these mitzvot. And he said, I have been working my darndest to understand ancient Israelite society, and I have been offering you explanations throughout the Guide of the Perplexed that are based on my historical, historicizing the mitzvot, explaining them as related to a specific historical kind of situation. Um, and unfortunately, the history books aren't good enough for me to be able to explain every mitzvah, but if they were a little better, I would have been able to, boastfully, I would have been able to explain every one of the mitzvot. So that's at the end of the guide. After he goes through this whole section, he says, that's, uh, that's where I didn't get to. Only very few will be left unexplained, and the reason for which I've been unable to trace unto this day, and he says at the end, the reason that I haven't been able to trace them is because of my lack of historical uh, certitude about what was going on 2,000 years before me. I have also been able to comprehend, in some cases, even the object of many of the conditions and details, as far as these can be discovered. You will hear all this later on. Stick with me, Rambam says. If you go through this, you'll hear... Every mitz, almost every mitzvah and some details but once you have to start going to the irrational to explain details that's where uh, that's where you stop yes Mark there's no 
Yes. Okay, Martin's question, I think it's a great, I think that he's uh, formulating uh, extremely well the, 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 uh, the problem that uh, many of us feel when we fit, read the end of this passage in the Guide of the Perplexed. We have been taught the principle of, uh, I think that uh, James Kugel was the first person who came up with this word, the principle, there's you have Lakshan quoting Kugel. Uh, yes, uh, he once spoke at York University, and I had the uh, opportunity of uh, introducing him. It was one of the highlights of uh, both his career and mine. Uh, uh, James Kugel uh, coined the term omnisignificance to, uh, to explain the rabbi's attitude to the text of the Torah, that everything is significant, that there isn't anything... Now, and Rambam buys into that from a halachic perspective. You know, if a letter is left out of the Torah, uh, even if it doesn't change the meaning, sometimes the word otam, them, is written with a vav, and sometimes it's written without a vav. And uh, if, if you leave out the vav when it's supposed to be there or where you put it in when it's not supposed to be there, Rambam would say that the Sefer Torah is pasul. It cannot be used for a service in the synagogue. So he thinks everything is significant. So Martin says, how in the world can you come from a worldview of omnisignificance and say that these details don't really matter? It says lamb, but it could have been ram. Well, let me try to answer. I would say, if I were the Rambam, I would say to you as follows. Uh, Halakha feels that it's good that people who are wearing tefillin should uh, that tefillin shouldn't look different from each other that we shouldn't have some paisley tefillin and some uh, some purple tefillin and some black tefillin and because of that the Shulchan Aruch says that all tefillin should be painted with black ink there is no significance to the choice of black and were, uh, if it had said paisley, that all tefillin should be paisley, that would have been fine also. There is significance to uniformity. And there is a good idea that people do it the same way as each other. And that is the significance. The Torah wants not competing, you know, I have, you and I have both committed the same sin. And we both have to bring a, a sacrifice to the temple. And I bring a sheep. And you say, hmm, Marty just brought a sheep. 
that's nothing significant. I am going to bring a cow, which costs a lot more money than a sheep, and I'm going to... So in order to cut down competition of this nature, there was a desire for uniformity. So it says, every sacrifice, I'm telling you, this sacrifice has to be a lamb, and this one has to be a goat, and this one... And... Uh, did it matter? Could they have switched it around the other way? They could have switched it around the other way, and it still is significant. The significance is in the uniformity of it. You want to have a legal code that is the same for, for different people. You want to have people not competing with each other in their observance of mitzvot, although no matter what we do, we find people who figure out ways to compete with each other in their uh, observance of mitzvot. How much did you spend on your etrog, and how much did you uh, uh, spend on, uh, on this mitzvot? But they... That's, I think that's how Rambam... But still, I agree with you entirely, Martin, that the spirit of omnisignificance seems to have been offended by this kind of approach of the, uh, of the Rambam. Yes? If the Shem is supposedly beyond time and space, right? and this is the word of a Shem, why should historical significance play a role? Right. Excellent. And I think that we're going to talk about that some more tomorrow. Uh, but just to, uh, you know, not to dismiss your question. I remember one time I stood up in my, uh, in my synagogue and I gave some Dvar Torah in the synagogue that I daven at regularly. And one of my fellow professors came up to me afterwards and said, I loved your uh, Dvar Torah, but Marty, you historicized the text. He said, don't you, he's a professor of history. He said, don't you know that, it's, uh, that, it, that you're not supposed to historicize historicize a text in an orthodox synagogue. We were laughing about it, uh, and there, there were no consequences to me for giving this, uh, this part. But there is, we were talking about the fact that very rarely do people stand up and say, this mitzvah is related to a specific historical circumstance, and Rambam's doing it all the time. The end of the Guide of the Perplex is filled with historicizing of mitzvot, but that's the commercial for tomorrow's, uh, for, for, but, but the issue, the issue is real, and we'll talk about it tomorrow. Yes. Right, right. But he doesn't attribute this necessarily to the word chukah. He, he says that there are, that in general there are details, even whether they're labeled chukah or not, that have no rational reason for them. And if you spend your time trying to figure them out, you are wasting your time and you're going to come up with all sorts of absurd ideas that I, Rambam, would not like you to come up with. Find something better to do with your time than figuring out why a certain uh, sacrifice is made with a lamb and uh, I heard a beautiful shiur one time that went through the various uh, types of sacrifices trying to explain the type of uh, animal that was uh, chosen for each, uh, for each sacrifice. Things that I have to admit I don't pay that much attention to. Maybe I'm too much of a rambamist. When, I, when I'm uh, studying the Torah, I don't pay that much attention to the question of whether it's a lamb or a goat that's been taken for a specific uh, uh, Korban for a specific sacrifice, but others have done this, and Rambam is dismissing that, and he has his own kind of approach. Okay, let us go on and take a look at a, uh, another famous text of the Rambam that, again, might not be entirely consistent with the approach that he has uh, taken before, and a, a, uh, his 
here from Shmona Prakim. Shmona Prakim, this uh, actually Rambam wrote, uh, just to get back to Rambam's life, he wrote this when he was young. He wrote this in his commentary to the Mishnah, which, if I remember correctly, he wrote before his 30th birthday. Uh, and this is the uh, introduction that he wrote to Pirkei Avot, which he called Shmona Prakim. It's eight chapters long. Here are eight chapters that you should know about ethics. Before discussing the... Uh, before discussing the ethics of our fathers, as we tend to call it in uh, English, Pirkei Avot, he gave you various principles about ethics. And here he poses what I think is a very interesting uh, conundrum for him. Rambam, as we all recall, took the philosophers very seriously and took the Torah very seriously. And here he talks about an issue that somebody who takes philosophy seriously and takes the Torah seriously might find difficulty understanding. The philosophers have argued about people who exercise self-control, that though they do what is right, they perform these good, these good deeds while desiring and craving to do evil and fighting against their inner desires. They do good, but they are sad to be doing good. A person who walks along and has strong desires to steal, who just can't stop staring at that person that's sitting there on the floor and thinking, wouldn't it be fun to steal that purse? And overcomes such feelings and doesn't steal the purse. The philosophers have said that a person like that does good, but they are sad to be doing good. And the bottom line is the last line of 16 here. The greater people are those who do good while desiring and craving to do good. The philosophers say that if I see that purse sitting on the floor, it would be better for me not to want to steal it. To realize that it isn't mine. And not to sit saying, I'm, I'm holding myself back. I'm not stealing. I'm not stealing that purse. Uh, that that's a better kind of person. So that's what philosophy teaches us: that if you observe the laws, you should internalize the law. The laws should be part of your uh, value system and your your feelings. You should feel that it is correct. You should you should observe the law, and you should feel that it is correct to observe the law. And while we explored what the classical rabbis have to say on this subject, we found that they say that people who desire and crave to sin are superior to those who have no such desires. Kol ha-gadol yitro gadol heimenu. The greater a person is, the stronger the evil inclination is. That's a, a statement from the, uh, from the, the Gemara that the stronger a person is, the greater a person is, you know, they'll have stronger desires both to do good and to do evil. Now, people with strong characters will often have strong desires to do evil. And there are people who, uh, there's this, uh, this wonderful short story that was written uh, by Yudlam at Peretz. He wrote it both, he wrote it in Yiddish and then he translated it into, into Hebrew himself. In, uh, in uh, Yiddish it's called Bunche Schweig and in uh, Hebrew it's called Bunche Stok. It's about this uh, long 
suffering uh, person who uh, went through uh, all sorts of hell in his life and then dies and is coming to heaven and this person who never complained about anything even though everything had gone bad in his life comes up to heaven and all the angels come out to greet him this great tzaddik, this great righteous man who had suffered so much and had never complained and then they uh, say you, you can have anything all of heaven is, uh, is available for you and uh, uh, what would you like? And he said, you know, if I could have a warm bun every morning, that would be great. And the, it, it, it apparently is an anti-Hasidic story. The anti-simple man story. And make, making fun of the stories that, that glorify the simple person. Because this guy never complained because just... He's a nebuch. He's just that kind of person who just uh, has very little character. And so, you know, whatever happens to him in life, he has no great desires, no great aspirations, nothing that he wants to do in life. And the reason they never complain is because, uh, you know, whatever, whatever happens to me, happens to me. And, uh, you know, when they ask what he'd like, all he'd like is a roll every morning. And uh, that, 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 those are his aspirations in life. It could be warm. Uh, and that's the end of the story. Uh, pardon me? With butter, yes, 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 a warm roll with butter. So, the, uh, Rambam says that it seems as if the Torah is teaching us that the stronger kind of people are the ones who have strong desires, and that will include occasionally desires to do evil. And, well, I'm not going to start talking about politicians and. Everybody, let your imagination run wherever you want it to run. Yes, please. That's right. Very good. Ah, he's going to quote that. He's going to quote that right now. Excellent. Okay, you uh, you could have written this text. Uh, maybe you were Rambam's ghostwriter. Very good. They even said, the third line of 17, they even said that the greater and more ideal that people are, the more they will desire to sin and the more they will feel deprived when they do not sin. They told stories to illustrate this idea. And they said further that the greater person has a stronger evil inclination than the lesser. That's the line that I quoted. Kol hagadol mechavero yitro gadol hemenu. If you are a stronger kind of person, you are probably going to have also you're going to have strong good inclinations and strong evil inclinations, which you are going to have to keep in check. Which you are going to find it difficult to keep in check, and you have to. And they said further that. Reward is commensurate with effort. Lefum tsa'ara agra. They said in Aramaic, reward is commensurate with effort. Meaning that if I find it harder to observe a mitzvah and you find it pretty easy, I get more reward for this. Meaning, now, what about that means that my evil inclination is strong and I have to overcome my desire to do evil and you, for you it comes naturally. So it seems, Rambam says, <coughs> that there's this contradiction between what the philosophers teach us that values should be internalized and that the way that you behave should be the way that you think and what the Torah teaches us that the way that you uh, think if you're a great person will often be at odds with the behavior that you do yes please
Right. Okay. Very good. There is this claim that Moshe had, you know, had a... Uh, there is an old Midrash that people argue about whether it's a legitimate Midrash uh, or not that uh, you know, there's somebody was looking through a book of history and found found Moshe and found that Moshe was this person who had the, the this potential to do very evil things and you know this was Moshe uh, based on the same idea and now they quote precisely the Talmudic text that you uh, st- alluded to before he quotes it in 18 furthermore they instructed us the people should always be the type who exercise self-control they should not say I am the type of person who naturally has no desire to commit this specific transgression and I would refrain from it even if the Torah had not forbade it. In other words, I shouldn't say I don't eat uh, meat and milk and that's because it's disgusting. And, you know, they used to say that the Musculum, the enlightened uh, Jews who ran away from Eastern Europe and arrived in Berlin, the first two things that they would do when a Moskil uh, arrived in Berlin, the first thing uh, he would do would be to eat some pork and the second thing he would do would be to throw up because they, you know, because they had so internalized and, but uh, you know, they knew now I'm in Berlin, I've gotten away from Eastern Europe, I have to eat pork and then they threw up because they'd internalized but then but the text is saying you shouldn't have internalized it so they have said, Rabbi Simon ben Gamliel says, people should not say, Rashi, this is you're quoting uh, Rashi who quoted the Gemara that said this now, Rambam is quoting the same Gemara that says this, Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel says, people should not say, I do not want to eat meat and milk together, or I do not want to wear chutneys, or I do not want to have illicit sexual relations with an erva, rather a person should say, I want to, but what can I do? My Father in Heaven has forbidden it. It isn't good to have the feeling that this has been internalized, that in fact, you should say to yourself, gee, cheeseburgers? Doesn't sound like there's anything wrong with that. Could be very tasty. Could be very nice. Why, why, why not? Except that the Torah said, that you shouldn't say, oh, it's disgusting. And that's why I... Uh, so, so this is the conundrum that Rambam has set up in this text. Yes. Ah, very good. That's Rambam's answer. Excellent, excellent. Okay. Okay. Very good. Very good. Uh, precisely the answer that Rambam's going to give. We have another ghostwriter uh, here. Very good. As we, as we go on, now that's what Rambam says in 19 and 19. Sorry. Uh, pay careful attention to their wisdom, the classical rabbi's wisdom and the examples that they gave. He, Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, did not say, a person should not say, there are too many negatives here. My wife uh, 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 proofread this stuff uh, beforehand and she said, I hope that people can follow all those negatives there in the Ramah. But a person, Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel did not say, a person should not say, I do not want, <sighs> yeah. uh, but it's uh, doing the best I can, that's what Rambam uh, did. So. He didn't say that a person should not say, I do not want to kill another human being, or I do not want to steal, or I do not want to lie. Rather, I do want to, but what can I do? My Father in heaven forbade it. Uh, Precisely what you said. No, yes. There are various rules that ought to be internalized, such as murder. If you 
In other words, if there has been anybody here who has been eyeing somebody's purse all through the uh, all through this session and saying, "I wish that I could steal it, but I'm going to overcome my desire to steal it," Rambam says that's not good. You really should have been concentrating on the Torah, and you should not have been thinking about. You should recognize private property. You should recognize the fact that something belongs to somebody else. You shouldn't want to steal it. You shouldn't want to commit murder. If you have a feeling when you're walking along the street and you see somebody and you say, I'd love to murder that person, but I'm not going to because the Ten Commandments say that I shouldn't murder, that's not good, says the Rambam. You should walk along the street with a feeling that you don't want to murder the people who are out there on the street and that you don't want to steal the purse that is sitting there on the floor uh, and that you don't want to lie. Gee, I'd really like to lie. I'd like to tell you a story about all the, uh, all the academic degrees that I have and uh, it would be a lot of fun to lie to you about uh, all those degrees that I have. But the reason that I don't lie is because the Torah... Uh, told me not to lie and that's why I'm overcoming it. He said, no, that's not good. It would be preferable if you did not want to lie and if you did not want to murder and if you did not want to steal. Rather, just all the examples that he gave were of revealed laws. Now, this is, uh, this is the reason that I quote... I love this text for many reasons. The reason that I, uh, I put it into our uh, series of texts for today because it seems to be suggesting that there's some... There are reasons and there are reasons for laws. Rambam will give a reason for the laws of meat and milk. Uh, and we will see it on Wednesday. Uh, on Wednesday morning we will see Rambam's reason for the laws of meat and milk. But there are reasons that ought to be internalized. And there are reasons that aren't internalizable. And the kind of reason that Rambam will give for meat and milk is not something that is to be internalized. And so, as I said, there are like two categories of reasons that Rambam believes in. These are revealed laws. A revealed law is a law that uh, Rambam is saying that we would not have known about had there not been revelation. We would not have come up, naturally speaking, we would not have come up with a rule that says don't eat meat and milk. That's not something that you naturally come up with. It's true that the Rambam will give us a reason for not eating meat and milk, and we will see that on Wednesday, as I said. But you wouldn't naturally come up with that. But you would naturally, according to the Rambam, Rambam does believe in natural law and does believe that human beings would, if left on their own, without a Torah, they would come to the conclusion that murder and theft are not, and lying are good things to avoid. And the major reason is because... Uh, I don't want anybody murdering me or stealing from me or lying to me. So there's a kind of social contract that I will not murder other people and I will not steal from other people and I will not lie to other people because I'd like you people to behave to me in that same way. So that's a, that's a, that, And that should be internalized. And if you're the kind of person who's going through life feeling terrible about the fact that you are refraining from murder, there's something wrong says Rambam, and he says the rabbis would agree with that, and the examples that they gave were only of revealed laws, like meat and milk, wearing shatnes or incest. 
These mitzvot and others like them are the ones which God referred to as my decrees. About them the rabbi said, decrees that I have made for you which you have no right to question and which the other nations rebut and the evil inclination attacks. And still he's going to give reasons for these in his guide of the perplexed. But they, like they're, take two reasons. So those are the two kinds of reasons that you should be, there are reasons that you should be making part of your soul and there are reasons that are not going to be part of your soul. Now, would anybody like to raise an objection to Rambam's theory here, Rambam's reading of the text? So you used to, even before we got to Rambam's resolution, you said, well, we wouldn't say this about murder and we wouldn't say this about, uh, about theft. Uh, you, see, you see, the the problem is the text that the Rambam quotes talks about erva. Now, erva, in its in its uh, simplest sense, means incest. As opposed to adultery, it means incest. And you see, I think the Rambam is stuck here with this text. And, you know, he's trying to resolve the tension that he sees between the Jewish approach and the philosophical approach. And he is, I think he's kind of uh, smoothed it over a little, a little much by uh, not noticing, so to speak, that the word erva is there in the text. It is, I presume that Rambam would say to the person who wishes to uh, have uh, sexual relations uh, with, a, with a sibling or something like this I, w- I would say I would presume that Rambam would say there's something wrong with you you, you shouldn't want this and the example it, unfortunately his text gives him two out of three that are uh, things that, that are not all that internalizable eating meat and milk wearing wool and linen together in the same, uh, in the same garment those are things that are, are not based on values that are to be internalized but one would think that incest would be in the other category although I don't know there might be different pardon me it is so cross-cultural. Yes. Yes. Except that I would say, I, I hear what you're saying, and I agree with what you're saying, except that I would say, I've always been puzzled by the Torah reading that we read on Yom Kippur afternoon, which talks about the rules of incest which introduces the rules of incest by saying don't do like they did in Egypt don't do as they do in Canaan you just left Egypt you're on your way to Canaan and then it lists all sorts of incestuous Relationships, and so it is possible. Although in our society, I I, uh, I hope that everybody is right here in saying that these are cross-cultural values that are held by uh, by all uh, in all societies. It seems as if the Torah is suggesting in that text in uh, in Vayikra in Leviticus 
that it wasn't a universal value, that it was part of the revelation of the Torah. Don't, you know, this world in which you Israelites live is a world where incest is practiced, is what that text is saying. They did it in Egypt. They do it in Canaan. You're going from Egypt to Canaan. Don't do it because you are a holy people to God. In other words, that the Torah, that it's not just Rambam who, and Shimon ben Gamliel who are presenting incest as something that has to do with revelation, that the Torah itself is... And here, I think, luckily, none of us know very much about incest in the, uh, from 3,000 years ago. And so we don't know. This might actually be the situation that it wasn't a cross-cultural, universally accepted value 3,000 years ago. Yes. With a twin sister. That's right. Very good. And they married their twin sister. And in fact, there is the great, I think it was Billy Sunday, who was the one who used to ask the question all the time, who did Cain's, uh, who did, uh, Cain's children marry? Who did, yes, uh, yes, uh, pardon me? Uh, yes, uh, who did Seth, uh, who did Seth uh, marry? And uh, there's a rabbinic answer to this that's a, it's, it's an extremely strange word in, the, in that same passage in, in Vayikra it talks about the rules of incest when it says that a brother and sister are not allowed to sleep together it says chesed who now chesed usually means something good but obviously in the context there chesed it means something bad uh, some of the commentators say that the word chesed means an overflowing of something more than is appropriate Chesed is, you know, that I have to uh, give a certain amount of stock, and it's chesed if I do more than that, more than I have to do. So that anything that's more than expected, and so, of course, a brother and a sister should have a nice attitude to each other, but this is more than, that's why the word chesed. Anyways, it's clear that the word is a negative word there, but there is a verse in Tehillim that reads, Olam chesed yibaneh. The world was created with chesed, and there's a midrash that says that that's who Seth married. He married his sister, and that's the meaning of olam chesed yibane, alluding to that incest text in uh, in Leviticus. And the uh, the same, you know, in the list of incestuous relationships, it says that a man is not allowed to marry two sisters, and. Uh, Yaakov marries two sisters. In the list of incestuous relationships, it says that a man is not allowed to marry his father's sister. And Amram, Moses' father, marries his father's sister, Yocheved, and they produce Moshe, Aharon, and Miriam from this. So it is possible to argue that, this, uh, that the values of incest were, in uh, 3,000 years ago, part of the revealed laws and not part of the laws that people had naturally felt this distaste for, as we ought to be feeling distaste to murder and distaste to lying and distaste to, uh, to theft. Yes? Right. 
There, I tried to remember the. I, I read a novel this last summer. I've forgotten the name of the novel. Maybe somebody else remembers. By Shulamit Har Evan, an Israeli uh, an Israeli writer who wrote a novel that was set right at the time of the conquest of Canaan. Uh, you know, the Israelites are walking around in Canaan and are uh, uh, are coming into contact with the various people that are there, and they're uh, telling the various people there about their uh, the rules that they have. And uh, they tell some Canaanite that we have a rule that says we're not allowed to murder. And uh, the Canaanite, uh, it's, uh, most of the book is not slapstick like this, but this sounds like slapstick, the, this little section. The Canaanite is wondering and says, you know, I've heard of the rule that says you're not allowed to murder your uncle. That I've heard of, but that you're not allowed to murder anybody? Well, what kind of, what kind of rule system uh, is this? Uh, so, so maybe they, they weren't all that, uh, that universal uh, back then, the, the rules of, uh, of murder, but Rambam is making this distinction. And Rambam, in the continuation of this text, Rambam pats himself on the back, considerably said, this, this looks like a real contradiction but I solved it, and I'm really glad that the words of the philosophers and the words of the rabbis are not in contradiction to each other, that it is true that there are some rules that should be internalized and other rules whose te- might have te- amim, they might have reasons for them, but the reasons are not something internal to me. Yes, Ari. Both texts They are part of the thing. It's interesting. Why is there legislation about things like this that are part of the natural law? That's an interesting question that some Jewish uh, philosophers uh, talk about. But for some people, it makes it stronger because it is now part of the uh, it is now part of the legal system. But that's a, you know Martin's point from before. Just, just, right, yeah, just building on the system of the natural law wouldn't have been necessary to uh, to mention that. that uh, from these three days of classes you might come to a conclusion about it. I'll tell you my conclusion. I think that they've done wonderful things for the Jewish people and I think that you know, I don't believe that, uh, that the, Ju- the Jewish people are a race. And I don't think that anybody believes anymore that the Jewish people are... I went, uh, I'll just tell you a story. When I was a, uh, an undergraduate at a psychology professor who was uh, trying to convince the class that, uh, that uh, the Jews were not a race and he, in the middle of this lecture, he was a Jewish guy, and he turned around and he said, everybody look at Lakshan over there. So the whole, this whole class is looking at me. He said, you see those cheekbones on Lakshan? Those cheekbones are Russian cheekbones, right, Lakshan? He said to me, I said, absolutely right. That's where, he said, you know, okay, that's, the family came from Russia, you've got Russian cheekbones. That's a, that's a, from, from a racial perspective, Jews are not a race, but I, you know all of the uh, all of the 
accomplishments. You know, I even don't like when people refer to anti-Semitism as, as a form of racism. I think that it's, you know, Hitlerian anti-Semitism, he really believed that the Jews were a race. But there are forms of anti-Semitism that have nothing to do with racism. They're evil and they're pernicious and they're awful and they should be fought. But you, you, you have to call something by its proper name. Anti-Semitism is a form of discrimination that it is not, uh, you know, just like Islamophobia is not a form of racism because uh, um, Muslims are not a race, uh, are, are not a race either. There are many forms of discrimination that are bad, but they are not, uh, they're not a, uh, not racism. Um, what makes us uh, different? The laws of the Torah and, you know, I, do I have to give you a commercial about how many Jews have won Nobel Prizes and the accomplishments of the Jews in the world? I'm sure that people uh, know these facts. So, the things that made us different were the Torah, and uh, I think that it has had a salutary effect on the... That's my Ta'amea Mitzvot in the grand scheme of things, but here we're talking about the individual attempts at Ta'amea uh, Mitzvot. Please. Very nice. Yes. Uh, I agree with you entirely that uh, life is a struggle. Life is a struggle to do good. But the, the question the Rambam is addressing here is where should that struggle be? And he said that he thinks that that struggle should be in the revealed laws and not in the natural laws. And that it would be best if you didn't have to struggle with the rule against murder. But there are other rules that you should struggle with. It looks like I'm not going to get to the Ramban at the bottom of page 6 and following, and I hope that both of you who are interested in it will read it, but I just thought that I'd finish off with a curious text from a recently published book. Uh, Professor Chaim Kreisel from uh, Ben-Gurion University in, uh, in Beersheba uh, recently discovered in manuscript the Torah commentary that had been lost. And it's it was written by a rabbi from Marseille from the 14th century. Uh, the uh, he called his commentary Maasei Nisim. His name was Rabbi Nisim of Marseille. Just since we since incest came up here, I just uh, thought I'd throw out a, an interesting attempt at Ta'ameha Mitzvot in dealing with the rules of uh, of incest. Uh, just a, a thinking out of the box. When I read this, I said to myself, gee, this guy has uh, different kinds of uh, ideas. Um, maybe for the sake of, it's, it's 20 and 21 on page 6. Um, maybe for the sake of time, I'll just read it in, uh, in English, and those of you who wish to can follow along in the Hebrew. Uh, yeah. I should have said that uh, almost all the translations here are my own. Uh, the, and if you don't like them, please complain to me <laughs> about them. The, the translation of the Guide and the Perplexed, since, as I said before, my Judeo-Arabic is not all that strong, is basically the one that's available for free on the web. Uh, the uh, Friedlander translation from 1915. I got rid of some of the old-fashioned English from, uh, from his 
can find an English uh, translation on the uh, web from the, for free from the beginning of the 20th century. You can also find in modern Hebrew a new translation from the, uh, from the Judeo-Arabic available on the web by Professor Michael Schwartz of Bar-Ilan University. It's an excellent translation, and those who read modern Hebrew, I think that it's uh, just a, a wonderful translation. And after I spent uh, 80 bucks or so for the book, I found out that it was available for free on the web, uh, as often as... Yes, that's right, yes. So here's Nisim of Marseille, recently published uh, commentary from the 14th century. It is possible that the reason for forbidding incense is so that unrelated people in the country will come together with each other. This will produce feelings of love and of closeness. As a result, all the people in the country will become like one person. The country will then not be divided into distinct clans separated from each other with feuds constantly breaking out between them. As Plato said, the distinguished state is one where all of its inhabitants consider each other brothers. Interesting idea. And, pardon me? I think so. I think that Levi Strauss, yes, I doubt if he read the manuscript that was sitting in somewhere in Europe that, that Chaim Kreisel found and uh, published this, uh, but it's, uh, back in the 14th century, a Jew came up with this idea that maybe the whole reason for incest taboos is to make sure that your family and my family will intermarry with each other because there is a tendency, there's also a cross, people were talking about cross-cultural taboos against incest, there's also a cross-cultural tendency in most cultures in the world, maybe not in modern uh, America, but in most cultures in the world there is a tendency to want to marry someone who is just on the outside of the incest list, your cousin somebody who is related to you, people who like marriages to take place within the family. And you, you know that cross-culturally uh, uh, there are different opinions about marriages of first cousins and that marriages of first cousins are allowed in Jewish law. And I know, I have, happen to know a number of uh, wonderful couples of first cousins who are, uh, who are married to each other uh, very happily. Uh, there, there was a tendency in the, in the Gemara it seems that there is a predilection, a, a tendency towards liking the idea of a man marrying his niece, bat achoto, his sister's daughter. Now, this seems so strange, uh, 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 so strange to us, the idea of marrying your sister's uh, that a man should marry his uh, his sister's daughter, but they they talk about that in the in the Talmud in the Babylonian Talmud as something that was commonly happening and something very good because it's, right it's not on the incest list and there's a tendency of wanting people uh, to stay within the uh, to stay within the same clan and there is something nice about having you know a lot of relatives who are related to both sides of the, uh, you know, the, it's, it becomes unclear at the wedding who's on the Hassan side and who's on the Kala side. You know, there are people who are there from, uh, from both sides of the, uh, uh, of the wedding. But he says that the purpose of the incest laws is to force us to look beyond our immediate families in order to, because, and that will work to the betterment of society that if people are marrying uh, within their own family, it will not be for the betterment of society. Yes, please. 
No, he is not. Certainly not. I, and I did use the word intermarry in the next in my translation of the next paragraph, and I didn't mean with people who are not Jewish, but I mean you know outside of the immediate family. The best type of political leader. He goes. He has this whole long speech about what is the benefit to society when different families uh, marry with each other. The best type of political leader to choose is Gold, the son of Gold, uh, a uh, a wonderful leader whose father was also, or mother was also, a wonderful leader. And again, I won't make any comments about presidents or anything like that. Like that. A distinguished person whose parents was also distinguished. But when the second generation is but bronze, but what do you do when there was a good guy in the last generation, and you look at his kid, and the kid is not up there of the standards. What do you do? It is best to reject him as leader. This is probably pretty radical to be writing this in the 14th century, that if the, uh, that if the king's son is no good, you better take somebody else as the leader. It's best to reject him as leader and to choose a leader who is gold, the son of bronze. Since ultimately, and why is this okay? All people are brothers. We all have the same mother and father. We're all related. So it's true, you know, that this person's uh, father and mother might not have been the most distinguished, but we're all related to each other. For this reason, it is essential for the well-being of the country that the inhabitants intermarry, marry between families, not between religion, but between families, so that the state will be united and not divided into feuding groups. For then the land would vomit out its inhabitants. This is the end of Leviticus chapter 18 that talks about the rules of incest. It says that uh, if, you do, if you fail to observe these rules, the land will vomit out its inhabitants. And he's giving this rational rationale for it. If you had a country where all of the families insisted on always marrying within the family it would lead to feuding, it would lead to fighting, it would lead to rivalry between the various clans. And so here we have an attempt to rationalize even the rules of, uh, of incest. Uh, I thank you all.